John Carrot Cross, the working man's spy. He was born outside of Glasgow in 1913. He had four brothers and four sisters. His father ran an ironmonger shop. His mother was a primary school teacher. Though he wouldn't call himself religious, according to his biographer, his Presbyterian background gave him a fierce feeling of independence, a refusal to accept a feudal class structure, and a confidence in personal worth and dignity. Karen Cross graduated from the University of Glasgow in 1933 with a degree in German and French. He studied modern languages at the Sorbonne in Paris and then at Trinity College of Cambridge. At Cambridge, he hung out with left-wing circles and met with other members of the future spy ring. He was the fifth member and the final member of the Cambridge Five. Or was he? I'm Sam Logan, and you're listening to the podcast, The Story Is, the podcast where we talk about the past, the present, and the personal. This episode is the sixth and final episode of the series, Why Spy? In this episode, we are looking at John Caron Cross. Like any good spy, John Caron Cross has his story of his life. In fact, he wrote about it, entitled Enigma Spy. And that's what John Caron Cross is. He's an enigma. He's someone that's hard to figure out. Because there are those who say he was a certain way, and he says he was a certain way. He admits he's a spy. What he never admits, even though many have confirmed, that he is a member of the Cambridge Five spy network, which is why he has two angles of this. I'm not even sure what nickname to give him. Is he the working man spy? Or is he, according to uh, Joff Andrews's titled biography of John Karen Cross, is he Agent Moliere? I found the book Agent Moliere by Jeff Andrews very intriguing and interesting, and I recommend it, as it gave me a great insight into the how John Caron Cross grew up and how he differentiates himself from the rest of the Cambridge Five. It's in that book that is made the observation that the other Cambridge spies had an early education in the ways of privilege. It's noted that among Guy Burgess's contemporaries at Eton was a future Viceroy of India, a Lord Chancellor, the Speaker of the House of Commons, the Director of the National Gallery, the Editor of the Times, and numerous MPs. Kim Philby, who had the position of head boy, uh, was also House Prefect and the Commander of the Drill Squad at Aldro Prep School of Eastbourne, briefly interrupted his studies, to be taken by his father on a grand tour of the Middle East, from Damascus, from Damascus to Jerusalem. At the same age, John Caron Cross, it's observed, had barely left his village. Later at King's Scholar at Westminster School, Philby was told by his grandmother not to mingle with working-class children, lest he might catch something. By contrast, Geoff Andrews notes, John Caron Cross's academic career 
had its roots in his Scottish education system, less concerned with hierarchy and ritual and status, and more focused on providing a mediocratic vehicle of social mobility, which enabled the most talented pupils to get into a well-regarded secondary education system, where they would take hires, higher grade, with the prospect of going into university. He went into Cambridge College. From there, he went into the business of espionage. From 1941 to 1945, Karen Cross supplied the Soviets with 5,832 documents, according to the Russian archives. In 1944, Karen Cross joined MI6, the Foreign Intelligence Service. In Section 5, the Counterintelligence Section, Karen Cross produced under the supposed direction of Kim Philby, in order of battle, a strategic military positions of troops of the SS. Karen Cross later suggested that he was unaware of Philby's connections with the Russians, so Karen Cross worked nearby Philby, but we don't know if he worked with Kim Philby. In October of 1944, he wrote to his Soviet leaders in foreign intelligence that I'm delighted that our friends found my help worthy of attention, and I am proud that I contributed something to the victory, which led to the almost complete cleansing of the Soviet land from the invaders. In March of 1945, he was awarded a £1,000-per-year pension, but he refused it. Yuri Moden, the Russian KGB controller, the Soviet contact for the Cambridge Five unit, in London claims that Karen Cross gave him details of nuclear arms to be stationed with NATO in West Germany. He doesn't give a date for this message, but Karen Cross was at the Ministry of Supply in 1951, and NATO was established in April of 1949. However, there was no such plan at this time, and it was only much later that NATO obtained tactical nuclear weapons under U.S. control in Germany. This appears, some have observed, to have just been a disinformation exercise by Yuri Moden to confuse those who might be spying on him. Karen Cross, while working with codebreakers, passed on unsent messages to the Soviets by the British because they feared German moles. He passed on information about the Tiger tank. The Russians were able to analyze the steel of the tank and prepared by gathering armor-piercing missiles. It's said that he supplied information about the Western Atomic Weapons Program, the Manhattan Project, to assist the Soviet nuclear program. This would have provided the Soviets the possibilities of the atomic bomb. If this is true, without his help, their progress would have been delayed by years. In September of 1951, Karen Cross was questioned by British counterintelligence about his relationship with Donald Macklin and the Communist Party. Karen Cross had been trained by the Soviets on how to behave during a counterintelligence interrogation. In October 23, 1951, Karen Cross informed his Soviet controller that he had merely explained to the interrogator that he did not hide his membership with the party and that he would merely greet Macklin when he worked at the Ministry of Foreign Affairs but did not maintain any contact with Macklin after graduation. Under more interrogation, Karen Cross admitted to spying in 1951, 
after MI5 found papers in Guy Burgess's flat with a handwritten note from him after Guy Burgess's flight to Moscow. Philby also informed his Soviet contacts about this. For security reasons, the Soviets temporarily stopped contact with Karen Cross and allowed him to continue to report monthly his situation with appropriate signals and planned a follow-up meeting in January of 23, 1952. The Soviets developed an exit plan for Karen Cross, including money and paperwork and communication methods while living in other countries. However, Karen Cross did not single signal to his controller until early in March of 1952, a good two months later than planned, meeting during which Karen Cross stated he had been interrogated again. The Soviets did not have any more contact with Karen Cross and instructed Kim Philby to determine Karen Cross's whereabouts. Philby could not determine where Karen Cross was. If Karen Cross was a member of the Cambridge Five network, why doesn't Philby know where Karen Cross is? Karen Cross doesn't escape to Moscow. He resigns from the civil service in late 1952 and forfeits his pension. With some financial assistance from his previous handler, Moden, he moved to the U.S. where he taught at universities in Chicago and Cleveland of Ohio. Karen Cross continued his literary studies and writing, also worked for the United Nations Food and Agricultural Organization in Rome. He was never prosecuted, for which later led to suspicions that the government engaged in a conspiracy to cover up his role. British authorities decided not to prosecute him, perhaps in exchange for receiving information from Karen Cross. Both sides remained silent on his past, which is very likely because of the deals we already talked about that were presented to Kim Philby, that were presented to Anthony Blunt that we know of. These men, who were found out to be double agents, were given opportunities of immunity if they gave up what they knew. And I don't know what else explains Karen Cross's continued freedom after being interrogated and found out more than one time. But, like all the rest of the Cambridge Five, he was eventually outed. The identity of the infamous fifth man of the Cambridge Five remained a mystery outside the intelligence circles until 1990, where KGB defector Ola Gordetsky confirmed Karen Cross publicly. The Soviet double agent who defected to Britain in 1985 named Karen Cross in his 1990 book, KGB, The Inside Story, as the fifth member of the ring, and said that Karen Cross probably gave Moscow the first warning of the Anglo-American decision to build an atomic bomb in the 1940s. Soviet controller Yuri Moden's own book spells out the name of the Cambridge Five, literally in the title. It says, My Five Cambridge Friends, Burgess, Macklin, Philby, Blunt, and Karen Cross. So was Karen Cross was a spy, but was he a member of the Cambridge Five spy network? Yes, he went to the Cambridge, just like the rest of them, at the same time. But from there... His career, for the most part, 
is separate from Philby and the rest. Though he did share a same office with Kim Philby, Karen Cross worked independently of the other four and did not share their upper-class background or tastes. Although he knew Anthony Blunt at Cambridge, and Guy Burgess, and Donald Macklin from the Foreign Office, and Kim Philby from MI6, he claimed not to have been aware that they were also passing secrets to the Russians. Though working in the same offices and the same agencies, how did he not know, unless they were all really good spies? Or was he really not a good spy? Yet Yuri Modin and Oleg Gordevsky insist Karen Cross is the fifth man. Karen Cross insisted to the last that he never betrayed secrets that damaged Britain. And he was not ashamed to admit that he had given the Soviet Union information it used to win the Battle of Kursk. John Karen Cross moved back to England and prepared his memoirs, which were published after his death. They were titled The Enigma Spy. John Karen Cross, the last survivor of the KGB's Ring of Five. The BBC News says he was a testament to misconceived idealism found among the Britain's intelligentsia of the 1930s and a testament to the futility of MI5's hunt for Britain's communist traitors. But why did he spy? John Karen Cross spy? Why would he take this tremendous risk in his life and do this life-changing, life-altering tightrope of a walk that we have described in this series? What would bring him to be willing to make that risk? Well, like the other members of the Cambridge Five, Though he has many differences, his similarity is that he had a very difficult relationship with his father. His father is described as being a very distant person, a, someone who was constrained by the values of an earlier generation and was not in any sense a role model or a significant influence on his youngest son, John. Karen Cross acknowledged that he never enjoyed a close relationship with his father, partly a consequence of the age difference between them. He says, As my father married late, by the time I was born, he was old enough to be my grandfather. This, coupled with a Scots restraint, made for a lack of intimacy between us. My trouble was that, being the youngest, I never got to know him well, and had little knowledge of his many virtues, which I would have appreciated had I been in closer contact with him. This type of start in life, I believe, does bring someone possibly willing to go against the authorities of the day, to not necessarily stick with tradition, to be more of a loner, as Karen Cross was. He diverges from the other four also, in the way 
of his political ideals. He's incorrectly described as a class-obsessed working man's hero at odds with capitalism. His biographer says that his politics were driven by a combination of a European anti-fascism that was brought from riding his bike around Germany and Austria at the age of 19. His politics were also enhanced by meetings with Italian exiles in Paris. He is described as having a Scottish disdain for the inertia and elitism and conservatism of English governing institutions. His biographer points out it's from Moliere and not Marx he gained contempt for the witty French intellectuals as they paraded their follies and privileges. It's interesting that uh, one of his relatives, T.S. Karen Cross, produced, in addition to poetry, books on the mission and role of ministers, the elements of a good sermon and the task of reviving religion in a secular and commercial world. He also researched his own family history, discovering links between his ancestors and Walter Scott, and uncovering what he took to be a Karen Cross motto, which he prefaced some of his ideas and values. The motto was, I fear none in doing right. John Karen Cross's biographer wrote that it might be said that John Karen Cross adopted a similar principle in later life when explaining why, on anti-fascist grounds, he had decided to pass confidential material to the Soviets at the time of appeasement and during the Second World War. I fear none in doing right. Above all, however, it is his conversations with Nazi supporters in the year before Hitler took power that had a lasting impact. It's interesting, as, as they noted his riding a bike in Germany and really his travels before uh, going to college, uh, he has this trip with um, someone he knows by the name of Joseph Wettler, who is a young German he got to know in Glasgow. Now, while he Joseph was out, he, Karen Cross meets with his father, who served in World in World War One, and told him of stories of his wartime experiences, which had taken him within twenty miles of Paris. Air Wettler offered unambiguous explanations of Germany's prevailing problems, his biographer writes, which were now stirring a growing unrest among the population in Germany. He attributed it to all to a lack of discipline. Germany must have an army, he told Karen Cross, in what would become a common theme for Karen Cross as he traveled from town to town, city to city. Wettler also insisted Poland was making things difficult and to prepare for any future conflict, he felt there must be conscription. Ask any old German, Wettler tells Karen Cross. He will tell you that his happiest two years were his two years spent in the army. And he bemoaned the decline of discipline among the young while he regarded the implications of the Versailles Treaty, which held Germany liable for the war damage and demanded reparations, and disarmament as a result, as a disastrous treaty. The implied guilt on the back of defeat had created only economic hardship and burning resentments, which the Hitler followers were exploiting by great promises. Wettler did believe that Hitler was, had already reached his zenith and would decline. 
This was the first of many troubling conversations Karen Cross would have during the rise of Hitler. Air Wetler told him that he too had enjoyed all quiet on the Western Front and found it quite realistic. The next morning, Joseph took him to meet his aunt, who introduced Karen Cross to German wine, while in the dialect he sometimes found difficult to follow. The aunt described a recent clash between communists and Nazis. As Joseph showed him around Cologne Cathedral, Karen Cross heard more than on, more on the causes of the First World War and its aftermath. Germany had not violated Belgium's neutrality, and France would have placed her at a disadvantage. Besides, Russia was threatening Austria, so Prussia had to support her, etc., etc., writes Jeff Andrews. Very interesting, Karen Cross noted. He had, he found what followed more disturbing. His friend Joseph laid forth concerning the evils of Jews. According to Joseph, they were atheists, immoral, dishonest in business, and anti-national. He pointed out that there was much dishonesty uh, among the native Deutsch magnates, but he said all potentates were Jews. It amounted to this. All the successful personages in Germany were Jews, often by somewhat shady means. And this was bad for Germany. Therefore, according to Joseph, the Jews must go. Then he said, nobody kept to the Treaty of Versailles. Everybody is arming. The German minorities in Alsace-Lorraine were oppressed. Therefore, Germany should not keep to it. Karen Cross decided to no longer spend any more time with Joseph and left for Koblenz. In Koblenz, he stayed at a very affordable hostel, Jeff Andrews uh, describes, where he listened with interest to the political views of his fellow lodgers which included both a communist and a Nazi. The communists argued that Hitler had won support through lies and claimed that Nazis were jingoists. The socialists were regarded by communists as the Macklin type, or the MacDonald type, no friends of the workers, Karen Cross observed, in a reference to the bitterness towards Britain's prime minister, who had expelled from the Labour Party in 1931 after deciding to lead a national government with conservative, report, conservative support. The unemployed Nazi, lame and dependent on begging for money, showed Karen Cross a poem he had written. It was entitled, My Fate. And it seems Karen Cross was fated to be confronted by the evils of the coming Nazi Germany. Karen Cross had started differently, but his end is the same. Karen Cross believed in socialism, and saw that fascism of Germany was something that was a great evil, and it was, and that this great evil required betraying crown and country. Though he insisted he never compromised Britain with the intelligence he passed on. But how is that possible? As we know what intelligence is, by simply passing on information, you are by default informing on your own government. By giving information on a city, you are by default telling the Soviets where Britain has spies, where Britain has sources, where Britain has eyes. 
even if the information was gathered about Germans. He was informing on the extent of British intelligence. But this brings us to the ultimate question of the series. Were these men heroes or traitors? Remember at the time, communism was seen as the enemy of fascism, and democracies were doing barely anything to oppose the Nazis. Or if they were doing anything, uh, they were opposing rearmament at the same time, which made them look weak. Only the communists had the 1930s equivalent of street credibility in terms of being against fascism in a way that appealed to the young and the idealistic. If you ask Russia, they'll say the Cambridge spies were heroes. Philby's work led to the death of dozens of British agents, making him a reviled traitor once he was exposed in Britain. But in Russia, he is still admired as a hero. A plaque in his honor was unveiled at the head of the Foreign Intelligence Service at its headquarters in Moscow. In a story in December 2019, Russia honored two of the notorious Cambridge Five spy ring as President Putin railed against Britain and France for appeasing Hitler. Sergei Narishkin, director of Russia's Foreign Intelligence Service, said that Guy Burgess and Donald Macklin, the Soviet wartime British agents, made a significant contribution to victory over fascism. Strangely, Putin leaves out that Russia's own non-aggression pact Nazi Germany, and that it was only ended when Germany turned against Russia. What were all of them thinking after the non-aggression pact? How were they fighting fascism by helping an ally of fascism? Because of his memoirs were written under KGB supervision, it's hard to know exactly what Kim Philby felt about this event, which enabled Hitler only to have a, a fight on one front against France and the West. we do know that it's none of the Cambridge Five stopped spying for the Soviets before, during, and after the dreaded agreement between Germany and Russia. Though I can imagine the situation is, though they don't, they probably didn't uh, like that decision, by the time that agreement is made, all five of the Cambridge Five all five of the Cambridge Five are too deep in it to turn back. They're too deep in it to have any individual voice of their own. If you remember, Soviet Russia is very paranoid at this point and is executing people who even have a whiff of traitor. So if they were upset about the non-aggression pact, they really didn't have an option of backing away, of no longer being a spy for Soviet Russia. Now, the documentary of Tracking Edith brought up a good point. Towards the end of the documentary, it talks about the Cambridge Five giving Russia the bomb through their efforts. Without that, does America bomb not only Japan, but Korea, or China, with no fear of equal retaliation, would the world have seen more death and destruction 
by the American atomic bomb? Again, I don't know. But I'll pick a Cold War over, ato- over an atomic wasteland any day. Hindsight makes the spies a sort of hero, but they had no way of knowing how Russia would use the atomic bomb in the future. They had no way of knowing that Russia wouldn't be the one to lay waste to the world. It is heroism by chance, by default, by happenstance. Here are some concluding, po- concluding key points. Things I've observed and learned and noted as g- going through this series that relates to the, not only the conclusion of the events of the Cambridge Five, but how it reflects the everyday life and world and political world and the way that we think. Some of the things and points that I've come across and realized and observed. One is, when you alienate a segment of your population, don't expect undying loyalty. When making someone's lifestyle or orientation against the law, when the law doesn't respect them, don't be surprised when they don't respect the other laws. When you say you're fighting fascism, it's another point, when you say you're fighting fascism, look around and see who you're allying yourself with. Look at who you're really helping, not just who you think you're helping. Simply by labeling everyone who doesn't think exactly like you a Nazi doesn't stamp out hate. It makes you appear like the boy who cried wolf, so when the real thing comes... Your label has no effect on those you wish to fight with you and fight against and those who wish you harm. Radical political idealism can blind anyone. We saw it in Nazi Germany and we see it again with the Cambridge Five. It can blind you to its failures until it finally comes for you. By then, it's too late. You find your radical dream a real nightmare after you turned your back on your own country, family, and friends for a utopia that by its very name tells you it's unreachable. Over the years, Kim Philby and his classmates at the Cambridge University became the group we also know by their Soviet nickname, the Magnificent Five. Kim Philby, Anthony Blunt, Donald Macklin, Guy Burgess, and John Cross. There were other spies, and there could have been more. But it's the five that have become the most infamous. The Cambridge Five are the most infamous because they continued to be pushed by Russia as heroes. These were men who were clearly traitors, whether they wanted to admit it to themselves or not. They weren't trying to accidentally keep the Cold War cold. The Cambridge Five are infamous because they were never punished for their crimes. But that point I disagree with. They weren't officially prosecuted. Some cut deals with authorities, but not one of them went 
unpunished. They all lost something or someone. All their lives were dramatically changed forever. They weren't punished by the law, but they were punished by life. What we know about the Cambridge Five has made them infamous. But what we don't know is what made them dangerous. We may never know all the information they passed along or how many lives were affected by their actions. But here at the end, we know why they spied. Thank you very much for listening to this episode and this series, in fact, if you've reached here at the end. I do recommend you read Jeff Andrews's book, The Life of John Caron Cross, the fifth man of the Cambridge spy circle, Agent Moliere, as a significant portion of this episode came from that book. Also, I recommend the book The Cuckoo's Nest and The Cambridge Five, the history and legacy of the notorious Soviet spy ring during World War II by Charles Rivers Editors. Next episodes are going to be solo episodes. I haven't yet. Um, not ready to announce what the next series is going to be. Uh, the next few episodes will be solo episodes, standalones, uh, where we'll talk about isolated stories, maybe get some personal thoughts. I guess it all depends on how I'm feeling at the time. And uh, But yes, we've got many great stories ahead. And I hope you'll stick with the show. Until then, I'm Sam Logan. That's my story. And I'm sticking to it.